0: Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another.
1: And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com.
0: Today's scripture comes from 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on, their way to Gilg- were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, "Stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel." But Elisha said, "As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you." So they went down to Bethel. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, well done, Miles. Good job. As you might suspect uh, today's passage of scripture has to do with change and transition and how we navigate change and transition. I probably should tell you, you know, I haven't preached for various and sunny reasons for about a month. I feel a little bit rusty, but I have all kinds of, all kinds of energy to meddle in your life. So I'm really looking forward to that today. But speaking of change, I want to invite my friend Aaron Boerjack to come on down. Now, doesn't happen very often. We keep staff members for a long time around here, but Aaron announced here not too long ago, his tragically bad decision uh, to take another job. Uh, And uh, actually, we'll have him grab that mic right there. Aaron, why don't don't you tell us what position you'll be taking? Sure. I will be working remotely. We're not going anywhere. I was going to
0: say that. Oh,
1: no, go ahead. Go ahead. Fine. I'm sorry.
0: Uh, well, it's still true. We, yeah, I will be yeah. working remotely. I will be the assistant to the district superintendent for the Northern California District Church of the Nazarene.
1: Yeah, and as you as you heard Aaron say, uh, Britt was unwilling to move. Yes. Uh, so she remains. Yeah. Amen to, for that. Have you yeah. ever tried to Britt? Yeah. So Britt will remain a crucial part uh, of our team. And in fact, you'll still be around and a part of our fellowship, right? Yeah, for sure. Okay. So
0: I will continue to be a volunteer pastor. I'll continue to teach my Sunday school class and help lead some book discussions on Wednesday evenings. And we'll be uh, a part of our connection to the ecumenical and interfaith communities in Oklahoma. And so those things will be the same.
1: And still help us with all the bathrooms and the buildings. and No all toilets. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> passing that along. Passing yes. that along. Yeah. Good luck, Bequeathed Manny. To uh, somebody else. Enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. Now we are still uh, working through what, what the future will look like. But today, uh, the point is that I-, I wanted to say up front how desperately we will miss this guy. Uh, he has been a servant leader from the word go. If the sidewalks need to be salted, if something needs to be moved from manual labor to the really heady stuff, neither of which I like to do, honestly. Um, Aaron has been the first person there and he always knows how to recruit a crowd. He has, he has been a great pastor. And it would be the right thing for us to say to him right now. Thank you, Aaron, for this work. Thank you. Appreciate it. Oh, wait, wait. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, I mean, the good news is he's not he's not going far, and uh, he'll still be around, uh, and will help us with the uh, learning curves that are. You know, inevitable, but it's change, right? And, uh, I am tired of things constantly changing. Amen. I mean, whether it's change in the church and the ministry team or gracious change in my family, ugh, tired of it, y'all. I'm just tired of it, but there's, there's change on a global scale, right? There's change on a national scale, if you're paying any kind of attention at all, there's, there's change. The, the question is, is not whether or not there's going to be change. In a world that seems to lack constants, I would submit to you that one of the constants is change. Right? Things are, things are going to change. It's inevitable that things are going to change. But, but I wanna say a couple of things about that at the outset before we, we step into this text and a couple of others. I think some of that change is God-breathed. No, not all of it. Not all of it. I, I think some of it is the bad breath of mankind. Some, some of it is, is ugliness, right? But I do think, I do think and, and there, I think there's some scriptural evidence for it, too, that God also, this God of life, breathes change. Which makes it even more important that we would think through what the posture is going to be as we try to navigate scenes that are constantly changing. Because scenes are are constantly changing. It It seems like things are constantly changing at such a breakneck speed that one of the ways that people respond to change is by refusing it, right, in a small way. I may or may not be the guy who has said, even this week to my wife, why do we have to move that picture? It's always been there. <laughs> well, we have other pictures. And yeah, but yeah, but that one has always been there. And I'm used to seeing that picture right there. So, so I have it within me to be the person who digs my heels in, or maybe the posture is when there's all this change, I sort of feel like sometimes I'm living my life, uh, taking the same posture that I did when I was helping um, my kids to learn how to drive, right? You, you can tell that things are moving and changing around you, but you are gripping everything as hard as you can to try to give yourself some sort of even false sense of control that you can somehow, well, that's one of the ways that we respond to it. Some people dig their heels in, in the hopes that they can preserve or conserve what was yesterday, year. And I tell you who does it perhaps more than anybody else. Christian people. I don't know if that was a grunt or an amen, but either way, <laughs> Christian people. Now, hear me. Ours is a tradition that values tradition. We, we value ancient practices. We will do this thing again here. We will come around this table and we will say the same things. We will tell the same stories. We will reference our past, our history because it is absolutely essential and crucial that we do so. And so we are people of tradition. But I want to draw a distinction between tradition and traditionalism. Don't move the picture. It's always been there. Why? Well, because it's always been there. I want to draw a distinction between the posture of being a a sort of a self-glorified anchor, no, nothing around me will change. I am the anchor. I'm not sure that that is our best Christian posture. Maybe the best Christian posture is, is that of a surfer or a sailor. A surfer knows you can't fight the wave, you just gotta ride it. When we When we can discern somehow, and we're going to talk about the discernment process later, but if it's possible for us to discern that the change is god breathe, man, God's breath, God's wind, God's spirit, all the same word in Scripture, that is something we probably ought not to fight. Much like the surfer, we need to know how to surf it, or the sailor, we need to know how to be guided by it. Y'all, the movement of faith is forward Faith practiced in the light of the resurrection. It it is the forward movement of restoration, redemption, renovation. Yeah, but which direction? I, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, we have educated guesses, knowing what we think we know about God and the heart of God. Given what we know about this God seen most clearly in the face of Jesus, and yet, man, we have to stay open. We must have that surfer's mindset, that sailor's imagination. Because otherwise, I'm afraid that we will be part of the problem. And I would submit to you. Now, I'm a Christian preaching to Christians, and I'm keenly aware of that today. There's a lot of insider talk in this sermon today, and sometimes that's what Scripture asks us to do. And so I am a, a Christian talking to Christians, begging Christians to not be like me. And the moment I'm saying, don't move the picture, it's always been there. How might we better be shaped and postured for the wind, the breath, the spirit of God? Each week, I get a chance to meet, I have standing meetings each week with these kinds of people. Every Sunday morning, I sip coffee with Lee Nichols. That is a great man. <laughs> Love that guy. He, and he shows me what life looks like, and I know we're in a different series now, but he shows me what life looks like with, when life is lived with open hands. Love that. I also get to meet with Gerard Taschen. Not only is he brilliant, I'm telling you, I really believe he's a Christian. And he too tells me what life looks like When lived, what preaching looks like, what it sounds like when you do open handed preaching. We honored last week my mentor, Dr. Steve Green, and and, and I want you to know he's another person who has helped me to know okay, what does this all look like as we navigate a changing culture? What does this all look like? Also, each week at staff meeting, we hear from my dear friend, Reverend Ken Murray. And Ken, actually, his role, his role on the staff, his, his title is actually shepherd, and he does this so well each week. Brings us a little devotional each, each week, and I am going to shamelessly steal it, almost every word of it this week, uh, and read to you a portion of something that he read to us this week from a guy named, by the name of Friedman, Friedman's Fables. As we talk about how to navigate change and the different options that are available to us as we navigate change, here's one. It's called The Power of Belief by Edwin Friedman. One evening, a man came home and announced that he was dead. Immediately, some of his neighbors tried to show him how foolish this notion was. He walked. Dead men cannot move themselves. He was thinking. His brain was functioning and he was breathing. And that, after all, is the quintessence of living. But none of these arguments had any effect. Beyond that, he seemed to have a way of constantly putting the burden of proof on the other. Now, some of you are already thinking of that person who's around your Thanksgiving table. And maybe, maybe we are talking about him or her. Could be talking about you, though, so stay with me. He seemed to have a a way of constantly putting the burden of proof on the other. He never quite came right out and said, prove it. But that was the message that was implied. Not so much by how he answered as by how he avoided any answer at all. Eventually... Most of his friends and neighbors quit arguing, and the handful who were left, including his own family, became increasingly afraid for him. Several of them reached the same conclusion. He had gone mad, or at the very least, was suffering from some erratic mental process, exhaustion from work, perhaps, maybe a brain tumor. Whatever it is, he needs a rest. We'll call a doctor, perhaps a psychiatrist, maybe the family physician, or even a minister. As the mixture of fear and frustration thickened, It was finally agreed that outside help must be called. A psychiatrist was invited over to interview him. After some preliminary greetings and a few routine questions, the doctor asked to see the man alone. He readily agreed. The two went into another room and closed the door. And now and then an elevated voice broadcast itself over the transom, although nothing could be understood. It was clear, however, that the voice they heard getting louder always belonged to the clinician. Sometime later, both men emerged the doctor had his jacket over his arm, his necktie had been loosened, and his collar opened. As for the man, he seemed totally unchanged. Hopelessly psychotic, must muttered the psychiatrist. You will have to have him committed. He has lost all awareness of reality. If you want, I'll call the hospital and see if they have a room. The man interjected, now really, what kind of therapy would you prescribe for a dead man? Surely, sir, if it were known that you had tried to cure a man who was not even alive, talk about losing one's grip on reality. The doctor started to answer, caught himself, and then, with measured calm, said to the others, I haven't finished dinner yet. If you want me to call the hospital, just give me a ring. Well, now it was decided that the family doctor should be called. She had known the man since he was a little boy, and besides being a physician with a reputation for patience and skill, she was respected everywhere for her homey wisdom. She came quickly, and after one or two questions in front of everyone, asked the man in a no-nonsense way, tell me, do dead men bleed? Of course not, said the man. Then said the doctor, would you allow me to make a small cut in your arm, say above the elbow, I will treat it. There's no reason to worry about infection. I'll stop the flow immediately, and we can see once and for all whether you are dead. Well, dead men do, dead men do not get infections, nor do they bleed, doctor, said the man as he proceeded to roll up his sleeves. With everyone watching anxiously, the doctor deftly slipped the flesh and blood came spurting out. There was a gasp of joy throughout the group. Some laughed. Others even applauded, though a few seemed rather relieved. The doctor quickly dressed the wound and turned to everyone saying, Well, I hope that puts an end to this foolishness. Everyone was congratulating the physician when they suddenly realized that the man was headed to the door and as he opened it, he turned to the group and said, I now see that I was wrong. Then as he turned to leave, he added, dead men, in fact, do bleed. (laughs) Have you ever known someone to be so... Frightened by change, let's say. And maybe he or she won't even admit that. But someone who seems to be so frightened by change that they decide to dig their heels in, grip whatever can be gripped, resist all notions of logic, hunker down and say, yep, apparently dead men still bleed. I'm telling you, I think believing people do that As often as anybody else, as often as anybody else might do it. How do you navigate change? How do I navigate change? I can admit to you that sometimes I'm the problem. Sometimes I'm the one that digs my heels in, but don't get too self righteous on me. I know you. (laughs) Some of you are pretty good at gripping things and digging your heels in and resisting change of any kind. Sometimes we don't quite have enough courage to surf or to sail. Sometimes those winds and waves are scary enough that we default back to anxiety, the kind that causes us to hunker down and grip whatever we can get our hands on. Today's text and other texts that we'll mention are reminders that God moves and changes. God moves and changes things, things don't stay the same in God's presence. And yet we still struggle to surf or to sail. On the bright side, we're going to see that we're in good company. If prophets and disciples can miss it, maybe it's okay if we miss it every once in a while. And yet these texts are preserved for us in the hopes that someday, and hopefully even today, we'll finally allow God to be God and to move, even if it means moving us. Here's a question I I want to put in front of us today. What compass do you use to navigate life, to navigate change? I, I would say to you that good Christian people, and I'm talking about the people who would like to be understood as Christian, we still have the awful tendency to choose something that is near Jesus, but not Jesus. You know what I mean, anybody? Here's what I mean. Good believing people will sometimes say, well, I can find you a verse that says, right? Dr. Green, do you remember (laughs) that? I think it was a Sunday night. It may have been a Sunday morning. I just remember it was terrifying. When you held up a Bible and said, this, this is the Bible, but Jesus is the word of God. Do you remember this? even put it on, kind of kind of threw it down on the platform, and y'all put his foot on it. Anybody here, does anybody here remember that? There are a few of us still in the room, right? We all wrote our Congress people, we all said, what, what in the world is happening? But do you get the point? Do you get the point? Sometimes good Christian people have the awful tendency to choose what is near Jesus, but not Jesus, to really hook in there and make that into the basis of our faith. That becomes then the compass by which we navigate all of life, especially these scary, changey sorts of moments. Let me tell you something. It is destructive to choose any compass other than the one that we see reflected in the reliable face of God we see in the face of Jesus. Did you know? that the Bible testifies to the Lordship of Christ? Of course you do. Did you know that the Bible does not seek its own deified status? That the Bible seeks only to point toward the deity of Christ? And if at some point we end up worshiping that phrase that we can find that supports my... I mean, by the way, the Bible does say, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. The Bible does say it. Now, Jesus comes along and said, you have heard that it was said, (laughs) eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And then Jesus takes precedent and he says, but I say, you can find some weird stuff in the Bible. You really can. You can, and here's the term, you can proof text scripture to support your dumb argument. But, but I, let me be careful. And I can too, because I have plenty of dumb arguments that require some help, right? But the Bible, the Bible is but a testimony to the Word of God. And something breaks, not just within us, but something breaks around us. When we choose to navigate By something that is near Jesus but is not Jesus. Are you breaking? Are you broken? And are you breaking? Are you? like me, is part of what I'm saying, I have this same tendency to to be the person who opts for what was and sometimes at the cost of what could be. Are you (laughs) maybe even taking pride in your status as pillar that doesn't move as opposed to taking pride in your status as surfer that God moves? I've believed what I've believed for 50 years. That doesn't make it true. Someone I love and trust told me, told me. And because I love and trust him or her, someone told me the truth. And that truth was that the sun rotates around the earth. I didn't make it true. Well, then how do we do it? Yeah. Now you've really upset me, John. I'm really sorry. But it's, it's mostly Ken Murray's fault. <laughs> send your emails too. <laughs> so how do we do it? How do we navigate this? Well, there is an answer. I mean, you got to have a Compass got to be Jesus. It's got to be Jesus. It can't be a literal reading of scripture. It can't be a literal reading of whatever document. It can't be a tradition. It can't be somebody else's political platform. Friends, I'm way off script now. I don't even know if I'm going to get back. (laughs) Friends, it has to be Jesus. It's the only reliable compass, especially during these times that are so confusing, complex. Can we agree that things are more complex than they've ever been? The only way to navigate, you have to have a compass. I'm going to opt for my own compass. I'm going to be my own compass. Well, you're a danger then. If you feel like that you're the final arbiter of truth, you are dangerous. You're dangerous. You see, there's danger on either side of this, right? I mean, this is kind of what Paul says in, in Galatians chapter 5, another text I, I might have used today. Paul says, hey, Galatians, you're new to this faith thing, but listen, you, you, can't, you can't fall off this horse on either side. On one side, you have these people who are saying, no, you have to addict yourself to every word that's written in the law, and he's talking then about circumcision and those kinds of things. You've got to get back to where we can all be legalists and fundamentalists. And Paul says, what? You've wasted the cross then. You've wasted the love and grace of Christ. But you also can't be the people who said, I will decide for myself. I will decide for myself. No, that 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 is also equally dangerous. What you have to be is navigated by the spirit of the resurrected Christ. You have to be navigated. That has to be your compass, the spirit of the resurrected Christ. I mean, I've got to get back. I wish I had breadcrumbs or something. I've got to get back. Here's change here in 2 Kings 2, and we'll, we'll, we'll loop all the way back. As Miles read for us so well today, things are about to change. We know what's going to happen here. It even tells us here Elijah's going to be taken up in a whirlwind, and Elisha will be left. Elisha will be left. Elisha kind of gets it too. So Elijah is trying to let him down easy and says, now why, why don't you stay here? I don't, I don't know if you want to see all that's, that's coming up. And stubborn Elisha says, no, I am going to grip you for as long as I can. As the Lord lives and as you, as you yourself live, I will not leave you. This speech happens several times. In fact, here we again in, in verse six, Elijah said to Elisha, listen, buddy, stay here for the Lord has sent me somewhere else now to the Jordan. But he said, nope, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Verse 7. Fifty men of the company of prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. But then Elijah took his mantle and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to one side and to the other until the two of them crossed on dry ground. And yes, you are right to, to see all kinds of symbolism, all kinds of meaning in these verses. Yes, it's all there. The narrative... Written by the God who parts water, it's still writing, right? It's still writing. The two of them cross on dry ground. And when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before I'm taken from you. And Elisha said, please let me inherit the oldest son's share of the inheritance, a double portion of your spirit. If I'm going to be left, I need a lot of what makes you you because I'm scared, says Elisha. I may not do this very well, says Elisha. And there's some evidence that he didn't do everything very well. He did call bears to eat children. Not great. I need everything I can get from you, God and Elijah. Verse 10, Elijah responded, you have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it will be granted you. If not, it will not. And as they continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah ascended in a whirlwind to heaven. Elisha kept watching and crying out, Father, Father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. But when he could no longer see him, he grasped his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. This is Elisha in deep mourning. He knows that something has changed and changed dramatically, and yet... And yet, though he may have been resist, resistant along the way, he now sees that it's somehow he's going to have to embrace this change. Verse 13, he picked up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him, and he went back and he stood on the bank of the Jordan. And y'all, I wish I knew what was going through his mind. All right, so I have this mantle. Think of it as sort of like a, like a cloak. I've come back to the River Jordan. And just moments ago, I saw what happened when my mentor said, boom, everything changed. But do I have it in me? Will God honor me in this moment of transition? Can I surf this God? Can I surf this spirit? Will God be a companion to me as he was to Elisha? So he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him, and he struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Now, before we move on, a little bit of background. Now, this is Elijah, the same Elijah who, in 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah, alongside God, was fighting this bitter battle against the prophets of Baal. False God, false gods. And in this contest, um, there was sort of a moment of truth. They had these bulls that were all heaped up on this. They'd sacrifice these bulls and they were heaped up on the altar. And, and Elijah said, I'll give you a first shot. Try to get your gods to burn up, these, to burn up these, uh, these bulls, this sacrifice. And so they danced around and cut themselves, just made fools of themselves and probably looked terrible. And then Elijah says, well, let me, let me take a shot at it. He said, this actually is in scripture. Um, Elijah said while they were dancing around and nothing was happening, he says, well, maybe your your God is temporarily indisposed, if you know what I mean. Maybe that's why your God can't pay attention. Let, Let me take a shot at it, said Elijah. And Elijah prayed, and fire came from the heavens and absolutely just devoured these bulls. It was pretty obvious then who won, because then after that, Elijah did the best he could to eliminate, quite graphically, all of these enemy prophets. And he thought he'd gotten them all. Turns out he'd only gotten half of them. It's a very hard, strange story. When evil Queen Jezebel heard about this, she was very angry and exclaimed, I'm going to make you dead like them by the end of the day. And so a frightened Elijah now ran. He ran all the way back to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. That should sound familiar. Back to where, for a so many reasons, it feels like the story begins. He goes running all the way back there. God's and says, what are, you, what are you doing? He says, God, I really need to talk with you. God says, well, hang tight and I'll be right by and we can talk. And then there was, I'm gonna call it a tornado that just blew everything apart. But God was not in the tornado. And then there was an earthquake that just shook everything. It seems like God's voice would be there too, right? But it, but it wasn't. Elijah knew God well enough that he could discern that God was not in the earthquake. And then there was a fire that consumed everything. Why wouldn't Elijah assume that the voice of God was discernible in the fire? It was not there either. And then there was, according to Scripture, sheer silence. And Elijah said, ah, that's the voice of God. That's the voice of God. And so he goes out and he speaks with God, and that's where God says, hey, you're you're not in this by yourself. This isn't all just up to you. I'm doing something. I'm blowing the winds of change through here. And by the way, at some point, you're going to need to find your replacement, and I've already found him. His name is Elisha. That's the backstory. okay? So God sends fire from the heavens, destroys God's enemies, In the New Testament, the disciples are walking along with Jesus. Jesus says, "Ah, I think I want to go over to this particular town, a village of the Samaritans. I think I want to go over there. And so a couple of people went ahead and said, hey, Jesus is coming. And these Samaritans, these gross, dirty Samaritans, by the way, I have a Sunday school class. called the Samaritans. I'm not talking about any of you all. (laughs) But these Samaritans says, no, we will not welcome this Jesus. And it really upset James and John. Now, James and John, they, they know their Bible stories. They were keenly aware of the story where Elijah was able to call down fire and fire then consumed the enemies of God. And so James and John, the sons of thunder, they come back to Jesus and they say, it may be time to do it again, Jesus. <laughs> let's unleash the fires of heaven and let's cook these babies. <laughs> what do you say, Jesus. Jesus rebukes them. Jesus rebukes them. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, we don't do that. How, how do you not get that we don't do that? I mean, you're walking right here with me, but somehow you've not allowed me to be your compass as it has to do with the winds of change and how it has, it has to do with dealing with people. We don't do that. We don't, we're not out to absolutely destroy our enemies. Hey, Christians, Christians, because Jesus is who Jesus is, we're not out there to destroy our enemies. Yeah, I needed more than that. Because Jesus is who Jesus is, because Jesus does what Jesus does, we no longer seek the destruction of our enemies. Disciples, why don't you get this? Am I not right here? You notice how many times, right, the disciples are portrayed as not getting it until after the resurrection? Y'all, we're all living post-resurrection. We gotta get this. We gotta get this. I, I, I don't know what your compass is. It needs to be Jesus. That Jesus. The one who decided that the best way to go about renovation and and restoration. The best way to go about redemption was to suffer love and serve even up to his last breath. I mean, how do you fight? How do we fight? So, it, it, it kind of goes like this as we get back to this particular story elisha says where is the lord the god of elijah and i told you i really wish that i could understand i wish i could i could somehow read the thoughts of elisha here he takes a shot he he risks that god is faithful he, he risks that the God of Elijah is also now the God of Elisha. And so he goes ahead and he strikes the water. And sure enough, the water was parted to the one side and to the other. And Elisha went over. I read this in one of the books I read this week. Sometimes we may prefer security and certainty to God's empowering us for a risky calling. In seeking security and certainty, we may ignore or confuse our own desires and conventions with God's direction. Elisha's experience invites us to seek critical distance from our own interests. I'm going to read that part again. Elisha's experience invites us to seek critical distance from our own interests, to grapple with uncertainty, and to strive forward to strive to forward God's purposes in the choices that we make. Here's something else I stole from Ken. Still not going to apologize for it, Ken. It was really good though. Oswald Chambers says this. You've heard of this phrase, seeing is believing. Oswald Chambers takes takes issue with that. And he says this, seeing is never believing. We interpret what we see in the light of what we believe. I mean, before we read the next paragraph, right? That was the point of the the Friedman parable, right? Because I am dead, I believe myself to be dead. If you cut me and I I bleed, it doesn't change my thought that somehow (laughs) I'm dead. It just tells me that dead men can bleed, right? God help us, is this us? I, I, I think there's plenty of evidence to tell us out there that what we believe shapes what we then see. Or have you ever been around a person who's rooting for OU and a person who's rooting for Texas for whatever reason? They see a game and they see a controversial call. Somehow they see it differently. You ever notice that? It's because what you believe shapes what you see. It's because what you believe shapes what you what you see? Do you believe that Jesus is a worthy compass to navigate complex changes and challenges in your life in our gathered-up life? If you don't, it may be affecting your vision. Faith is confidence in God before you see God emerging. Faith is confidence in God before you see God emerging. Therefore, the nature of faith is that it must be tried. Tried. Yeah, Elisha tried it. And it worked. Uh, Last night, I went to a graduation ceremony for Hope is Alive. Um, Hope is Alive is a uh, long-term recovery ministry. I don't know if you can see it, but our friend Blake is there on the platform. He graduated last night. It was a, it was a pretty long ceremony because they had 12 graduates. And it is a, it is a Christian program. And here's what I, I heard time and again, I heard heard this. Man, Jesus Jesus ends up being my only hope. And the only way I could navigate all of this difficulty, this difficulty with my family, family that I had harmed, the only way I could navigate all of my legal struggles and, and all of the despair that comes with trying to navigate legal struggles in Oklahoma and all God's people said, It's the only way to navigate difficult circumstances with other housemates who might just be as broken as I am and maybe more. Every single person says, if not for Jesus. If not for Jesus. In fact, it happened often enough that I started to hear these words from Acts 4 in my head. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by, among mortals by which we must be saved. You know, these, these folks, these addicts had tried everything else. <laughs> they really had. They had tried everything else. In these, hope is alive, living quarters. They'd learned Jesus and belief in Jesus. Now they can see clearly enough to change and navigate the inevitable changes life will throw at them. But here's the thing. All of these people were desperate, and I happen to believe all over again that desperation is a pretty good teacher of theology. I think desperation is a pretty good teacher of theology. I think desperation may be the way that we finally get people to the point where they see that the only good compass to use in a culture that's rapidly changing, that is all the time complex, confounding, conflicting, the only way is to try to figure out who this Jesus character is, how this Jesus character does, and how it is that I can be in actual relationship with this Jesus via the Spirit. Friends, friends, I don't think I can do it without Jesus. I think I'm a pretty good guy. I think I have some things going for me. I cannot do this without Jesus. I don't think you can either. The call is for us to make sure that we haven't placed ultimate faith in something that is near Jesus but not Jesus. The call is to make sure that like Phineas F. Brazee is quoted to have said, and this is one of the founders of our movement, nothing to the left, nothing to the right, only Jesus straight ahead. The call for us today is to try to get both hands on this compass, and this compass is the very life, death, life, ministry, presence, companionship of Jesus. I don't think things are gonna get less complicated over the next several weeks and months. Before you post on Facebook, please make sure that your compass is Jesus. Before you vote, Before you engage that person on the other side of the argument, maybe even your neighbor, maybe even somebody that lives at your house, please make sure that you aren't your own compass and that you haven't hooked into something that is near Jesus but not Jesus. Before you do all of that, as you go to work, as you navigate all of those differing definitions of success, Would you allow your pastor to suggest that the best way to navigate change, the best way to navigate the changes that are going to happen within you and around you and all of the, the stuff that you hope to do that makes for change, would you allow me to suggest that the only, the only, the single reliable compass is Jesus? To which every other compass should answer. This is why we return to the table each week. And if you're gonna help us, please come on ahead. This is why we come each week. Because Jesus is the hope. (laughs) And somehow, somehow, we need to be shaped by this Jesus. And this isn't the only way, but this is one of the ways that the church understands us to be shaped by the very nature of God we see reflected in the face of Christ. And so, Heavenly Father, bless these elements. Bread and cup. Seems so simple, and yet in your hands we know that bread and cup have transformational power. We know that in your hands you can move us, sometimes even without our permission, you can shape us, over a period of time. The cumulative effect of gathering around this table each week is that you can shape us to look something more like Jesus. Shape us, God, to be the bread taken, blessed, broken, and given. In our gathering around the table today, move us at least an inch closer to that place where we can say with deep conviction, Jesus is the one who is navigating us through a deeply confounding and conflicting life. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. Exit your pew to the left and come down with your hands cupped to receive these gifts of grace. that can't be gotten any other way. It's all grace and it's given as a gift. If you decide to participate today, you'll come down, your hands cupped, The person holding the piece of bread will say to you, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Take that piece of bread, dip it into the cup. When you do, the person holding the cup will say, and this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And then take and eat. And if you would, then find a place to pray. And I just have a simple prayer that I would ask all of us to pray today, me included. Is Jesus my compass? As things change, as things are so complex, is Jesus my compass or is something else? If something else is your compass, confess it, confess it, and know that the God who is quick to forgive is also quick to come alongside and move you and help you, shape you, grow you. If you come to one of these side padded altars, there'll be somebody, it'll be Pastor Daniel over here and Pastor Jim Williams over here who'll come down and pray a prayer for healing. Perhaps you need a prayer for a a physical wound or hurt. Maybe it's mental or emotional or relational. All of those prayers are welcome. At those side padded altars, someone will find you there and pray that prayer. If you come to one of these kneeling benches up here, we won't ask you very many questions at all. But at some point, somebody will touch you, probably be me, just so that you know that you're not alone as you pray because you're not alone. Now, if you would prefer something other than these these plates and these cups. If you need something prepackaged, that's fine too. In the aisles, as you were dismissed, row by row, you'll see that that person's holding a plate of prepackaged elements. If you'd like one, just let them know. The elements will have already been blessed. You can just take and eat as soon as you get them. So John who's invited to this table? All of us who understand our need for grace, and today that means if you understand that you really need this Jesus to be your compass, welcome. You'll always be welcome at this table, always. It was on the night he was betrayed that our Savior took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, "This is my body broken for you." And every time you eat of it, including today, as confusing as things can get, every time you eat of it, remember me. The same way he took the cup, he held it up before them and said, "And this is my blood, this is my my blood, the blood of a new covenant." And every time you drink of it, including today, remember me. So now, across the sanctuary, if you would, as you were dismissed, exit your pews to the left. Come forward with your hands cupped and receive these gifts of God, meant for you, the people of God. turning over to Jason Heavenly Father There are so many different options for us as we try as best we can to navigate change And for sure there are some in the room even this pastor who sometimes opt just to resist resist any kind of change even Even if it's God breathed, we just have a tendency to fear it and resist it. In our search for the different options for for compasses that are around us, we also have the awful tendency to choose something that is Christ adjacent, but not Christ. Confess God that sometimes we have opted to remake scripture in our own image to support our arguments. Confess sometimes that we have chosen blind traditionalism over habits and practices that remake our hearts to be more like the heart of Christ. If you recognize that you have chosen the wrong compass, if you recognize that somehow you have been that one who grips and digs his or her heels in no matter the change, perhaps confess that now and ask how it is that you can better surf and sail. Almighty God, have mercy on us. Forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in all goodness. And by the power of the Spirit, keep us in eternal life.
0: If you would continue in prayer with me, let's have a few moments praying together for some moments of intercession for those in our life who we love who needs God's continued healing touch in their lives. I'm going to start with my Sunday class, two wonderful women, both one recovering from surgery this last week and one with surgery ahead. Would you pray along with me? Jesus, we ask that you would take care and heal in the future of our friend, Randa Thompson. God, we ask you would come alongside her and her healing and her future. For those of you who don't know Randa, that's Shane Thompson's wife and the daughter of Roger and Anne Riggan. God, we ask that you would love and care for Randa, that you would sense your presence even now. God, we ask that you would take care of Carrie Orth as she has a surgery upcoming this week. God, would you be with her as Phil has to be away this week for work, that you would come alongside of her life and her family and that she would know as she approaches that surgery that you are with her and that our prayers are with her as well. God, we ask that you would continue to take care of Quinn Tucker home from the hospital and a good report today from Sadie Corder, from her mom. But God, would you take care? And God, we ask that you would heal Sadie and bring her a strong sense you're with her. And God, we ask in confidence that you'd restore her hearing. God, we ask that you would take care of Evelyn Slothauer as she recovers from surgery and God, we ask that you would take care of two of who we've been praying for so long, that the God you would heal from cancer, our good friends, Diane Dawkins and Scott Peterson. God, continue to do a good work in both of them and be with their families. God, we ask that you would take care of some friends like my friend Matthew, Peter, Matthew Larson and Jane Sparopoulos. That God, you would take care of Glenn and Betty Fain. And God as we pray for each week we ask that you would take care for those who are most vulnerable in our midst here in the United States and around the world. Those who are lonely, scared, alone. God, we ask you to pray, we ask that you'd be with those who are incarcerated. God, we ask that you would take care of those who need you the most. We pray for those who have experienced loss. those who have experienced brokenheartedness. And some of you have reached out to me this week with a difficult week that you've had with a friend. And God, now we pray for that heart who is heavier than all of our hearts, that one person either watching online this morning or here in the sanctuary with us, whose heart is so heavy. And God, we ask together as a whole body of Christ that your love and your grace would reach that person even right now. And God, we ask that you would shape and form us into be a particular sort of person whose compass Jesus is you. It may be one of those ways, this prayer that we pray together as a body of Christ. It'll be on the screen in front of you if you're unfamiliar with it at this time, but it's the Lord's Prayer. Would you pray it together with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts